This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show... A review by the Council of Australian Governments is looking at the health workforce of the future and is focusing on where our healthcare might be lagging behind. One area, the accreditation of medical practitioners. More on that later. Also... There's also a lot of use of opportunistic weapons. So if you think of an emergency department, there's lots of sharp things lying around. Patients grabbing, you know, needles or sharp scalpels, anything they can get their hands on to use as a weapon against nurses. Violence in the emergency department and why nurses are the main targets. That's coming up on Think Health. But first... If you've ever been in the US and watched television, you'll see medicines being able to be advertised because there it's a sort of free-for-all and prescription-only drugs that are available only from your doctor are advertised direct to consumers. Like antidepressants. Like antidepressants, What does that ad sound like? This is Rosalie Viney from the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. Oh, they're very strange. So they have a sort of lovely little glossy bit at the beginning with, you know, pictures of people running through fields, the kind of normal thing that you expect in advertising. Depression can turn you into a person you don't recognise. Unlike the person you used to be, someone your kids don't understand. Depression hurts. And then there is a very fast-spoken voice for a long time, somebody speaking very quickly, telling you about all of the risks associated with this drug at 100 miles an hour. Dizziness or fainting may occur upon standing. Side effects may include nausea, dry mouth and constipation. Ask your doctor about Cymbalta. Depression hurts. Cymbalta can help. Yeah, so I guess there is a debate around this because at one level you'd say you're not giving consumers that information. So you you can't get that drug without a doctor prescribing it. But maybe the argument would be from those manufacturers of those drugs, well, how would consumers know about this? So I guess that maybe in the US they say, well, let's just make the information available. It's a different regulatory system and so there are differences. I'm not sure that there's anybody in Australia who's strongly advocating for advertising of the prescription drugs, but there are some groups who advocate for the advertising of S3 drugs. S3 drugs stands for Schedule 3 drugs, which are ones found behind the counter at the pharmacy and are normally advised by your GP, although you don't necessarily need a prescription to access them. Normally they're for things like inhalers, cold and flu tablets and cough syrups. The scheduling of drugs is done as a safety precaution to make sure consumers don't have access to drugs they might not need or could be dangerous to them. Rosalie, as part of a research team at the University of Technology, Sydney, has been looking at some of the pros and cons when it comes to the advertising of S3 medications in Australia. Why do we not advertise S3 medications? The concern in Australia and in many other countries is that that's not appropriate because you need 
the information of a doctor to be able to mediate whether this medicine is correct for you. And so it's not necessarily appropriate for us to be saying, oh, I think I need that blood pressure medication or I think I need that antidepressant without that mediation of a doctor. And you don't necessarily want people to be going in and demanding certain medicines from their doctors. So there are a whole lot of reasons why we don't allow advertising of S4 drugs. S2 drugs in Australia, it is a bit of a free-for-all. So you do see those drugs advertised um, on television. So things like paracetamol or ibuprofen are advertised quite regularly. So you see a lot of those sorts of drugs being advertised. The S3 one sits somewhere in between. And so far, we haven't allowed advertising for them. And that, I guess, has been because there's a concern that maybe people shouldn't be going in and making demands. There's an interesting case study from quite a few years back when S3 drugs were allowed to be advertised in some cases. And there was a drug called Xenical, which was a weight loss drug. And the consumer organisation Choice ran some sort of secret shopper surveys and sent people out to pharmacies to ask for this drug Mm. and found that even quite slim young women were being sold that drug. So that suggested that there was concerns if you had this sort of free-for-all of information about certain drugs. So that's the downside of advertising. Why might you want to advertise? Well, basically, because otherwise consumers don't know about these drugs. So they don't know that they don't need to go to a doctor to get certain drugs. That means that they might be going to the doctor when they don't really need to because they could just go in and get some advice from a pharmacist and get access to the drug. And it may also be slowing down the process of access to the drugs as well. The other issue is that you might want to downschedule some drugs because we've seen them for many years. There's been use of them for lots of years. We know that they're safe, that it's quite reasonable for people to be able to access them and use them on a regular basis. And these are particularly things where people might need them for, say, an acute but recurrent condition. Like a paracetamol or Um, or something like that? So I'm thinking of things like the proton pump inhibitors, which are for stomach ulcers. So it's just when you have an attack or things like that, you can use them. Or the one that we actually looked at in this particular study, which was an antiviral tablet for cold sore treatment. Cold sore treatments are a great example of this because if you're a cold sore sufferer, then you recognize the symptoms, but you wouldn't necessarily want to have to go to a doctor to get treatment. So there's a whole array of treatments that are available for cold sores from ones that you can buy in a supermarket through to ones that used to be only prescription that was a tablet for cold sore treatment, so it's a kind of one-hit treatment, but has now moved to S3. And in fact, it's an interesting example. And one of the things we found when we did this research was when I talked about it to people, people would say, oh, I didn't know that was available. That's a kind of classic case in in point that people who are cold sore sufferers may not even know that there's an antiviral tablet that they can take because there's no advertising of it. Now, uh, that raises an interesting question for me because if there was someone who were perhaps seeking a cold sore tablet but wasn't aware that there was one that they could go to the pharmacy and get, might they seek something that wouldn't be doing them any good if they're, if they're not alerted to this thing out there that could actually help them? I guess it's not so much that they would be seeking something that wouldn't be doing them any good in this case, but they might be seeking a treatment that's not as convenient. So if you're a cold sore sufferer, then you probably use an antiviral cream. 
but the antiviral creams are a bit messy. You know, you have to apply them several times a day. It can look a little bit obvious, you know, and add to the general obviousness of your cold sore. And you've got to do that over several days. Whereas the idea of these tablets, I guess, is that they are a much more convenient treatment that you just, as soon as you have the symptoms, if you can take the antiviral tablet quickly, then it kind of hits the cold sore as effectively as possible. If we were to advertise these S3 medications, in what form would those advertisements come? Would they come in the form of, like you were saying before, in the US, these these kind of strange ads that are out there promoting something? Or would they be in magazines? Would they be on TV? I think that the model that has been proposed, or in fact I know that the model that has been proposed for what would be the right sort of advertising for S3 products would be a kind of an infomercial style advertisement. So there would be promotion of the awareness of the condition, promotion of the brand, and then the information that you need to go to a pharmacist to seek treatment, etc., and then some standard information. So I guess if you think about the kinds of ads we see for paracetamol or for ibuprofen at the moment, it would be similar to that, a really sort of an infomercial style rather than the kind of American-style ads that we mentioned before. Rosalie Viney, Professor in the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. The emergency room can be a chaotic and unpredictable environment, and on some occasions, a violent one. Triage nurses, the nurses who make the first assessment when a patient comes into emergency, are the most common targets. However, ongoing support for nurses who are confronted with a violent episode at work often lags behind. Jacqueline Pitch from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, has undertaken research looking at violence in the ER and the effect it can have on hospital staff. And Jacqueline says violence isn't limited to just physical attacks. So we're talking about not just physical violence, but verbal abuse and verbal violence. Very often it may start with that. So this can be, you know, raising their voice, um, swearing, demeaning names, ridicule, that kind of thing. Just this month, there's been two episodes that I know of, one on the Central Coast at Wine, one in Melbourne, where nurses were taken hostage by a patient with a knife. That's, I guess, at the extreme end. And also we had a nurse who was killed last year who was working in a remote area, I think it was in South Australia, who was actually murdered by patients. So it's that real wide range of behaviours. When this is all playing out, what's protocol to try and deal with this situation? The protocol, I guess, is very dependent on nurses because if it is starting off just as verbal abuse, that has become so common now that the ED nurses especially would tell you, you know, that's part of the job, that's just how it is. So they may be tolerating it, some may tolerate more than others, very rarely is that being reported or anything. If there's a threat of violence, they may call what we call a code 
grey or a code black where you're getting security involved and um, you might need to take down the patient. These would be rare. It's kind of an end, a last resort. You raise something that I find quite alarming is that, you know, if a situation like this were to play out and a nurse or emergency department staff, they kind of just have to shrug it off to be like, oh, well, this is normal. This should be expected to happen. But these aren't normal situations. And just because they're in the emergency department doesn't make that okay either. That's exactly right. And there there has definitely been a normalisation of this type of behaviour where it's kind of expected and then it becomes accepted as part of our job. And the nurses were very acutely aware of this, saying, you know, if I went to the bank and this kind of behaviour happened, it wouldn't be tolerated. These people would be removed. So there is that, even though we do have a policy of zero tolerance, which says we won't put up with it, it happens on a daily basis. Having spoken to nurses, what sort of effect does it have on them? What I found surprising, I guess, was in terms of verbal abuse, the impact of that can last for up to 12 months with nurses. So they can have symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, so sleeplessness, weight gain, weight loss. A lot of them talked about coping strategies that weren't necessarily positive, so perhaps going home and drinking. That concerned me, especially when you think that if this is a daily occurrence, and sometimes in terms of bed block, that might mean that a patient might be in the department for an extended period. So a nurse might go home and come back and the same patient might be there. And so then the abuse continues. They also talked about because of this, they start to get a bit burnt out. There's decreased levels of empathy towards patients. And the research says that when this happens, there can be actually a negative effect on patient care. And from that, um, an increased risk of adverse events, so things like having medication errors. Right. And you said at the beginning there that that was as a result of perhaps verbal violence. But do those sort of similar effects or experiences, does that also apply to physical violence events? Yes, there'll certainly be an effect in terms of physical violence. However, it's the verbal abuse, I guess, that lasts longer. So the physical often um, lasts as long as it takes the person to recover. And the impact wasn't quite as insidious, I guess, as the verbal abuse. But in terms of physical violence, say in the instance of someone who might be under the influence, is it like a thrown punch or is it like a swing and then an emergency department staff gets caught in the crossfire, so to speak? Yeah, so the most common type of injury is soft tissue injury, so bruising, so you're right, so some a punch, pulling, scratching, that kind of thing. There's also a lot of use of opportunistic weapons. So if you think of an emergency department, there's lots of sharp things lying around, so patients grabbing, you know, needles or sharp scalpels, anything they can get their hands on to use as a weapon against nurses. Just the lanyards kind of being used to strangle In emergency departments in the United States, for example, they actually have um, metal detectors that patients have to go through before they can enter a lot of departments because there's an increased risk there of guns and serious type of weapons. And they also have tasers. So security there will have tasers to take down patients. But that's that has been broached here at some point. But I think if the problem then is escalating a lot rather than being contained, I guess, if we're going to those extreme measures. Right. So they seem to be, well, if that's a system that works in the States, it works there. But those precautions, do you think people might see that as being taking it a bit too far I here think, in Australia? Yeah, I definitely think so. And there's, there's some evidence that says if you, just the mere presence of security or seeing a weapon or that type of thing can actually escalate violence. So once they see a uniform, in certain types of people that can actually escalate, they may just have been being verbally violent and it becomes a physical 
thing just because of that. What sort of thing is on offer to help emergency department staff or nurses if an instance like this were to unfold? Are they, do they have people that they can speak to? Do they have sort of like refuge spaces within the hospital if something like this goes down? It's a good question. So in terms of what what tends to happen in, in the aftermath following um, an episode, nurses aren't really that well supported. And again, it's that kind of that attitude, I guess, that it goes along with, oh, it's part of the job, so you should be able to deal with it. Um, sometimes nurses are blamed. You know, what did you do to that patient to make them go on like that? When I interviewed or when I surveyed nurses and they would be telling me they'd been injured at work, it was only a very small number that actually took any time off, and that included going home that shift. So most nurses will start work, they'll just finish their shift and probably the most common way that they will debrief is just with colleagues. So it would be an informal debrief rather than some kind of formal structured debrief. There are counselling services that are on offer, um, but very often these aren't taken up by the nurses. And a lot of time they feel unsupported and they just kind of feel resigned to, well, this is part of the job, I just have to get on with it. It's a tricky situation because to say that in that particular environment that you would never be exposed to that because it's a very unpredictable environment. How do you find a middle ground between providing that support but at the same time making them aware that at some point this may unfold? Yeah, and I think that's one of the issues with it because nurses, you know, it's a caring profession, so we're there to look after people. So part of the reason that a lot of the violence tends to be excused or nurses don't do anything about it or it keeps on going is because they don't want to blame, very often don't want to blame the victim, oh, it's not their fault because they're under the influence or because they've got this issue or that type of thing. But I think providing support and also having consequences for people who commit violence against staff is certainly a good starting point. So, for example, if somebody attacked a police officer or a frontline person, so a paramedic, for example, the law is different to than if they attacked a nurse. So a lot of what they're talking really? about is, yeah, bringing that. So they're still frontline workers, so the consequences should be the same. So it's pretty rare that someone will be charged for injuring a nurse. Why does that protection not cover nurses at the moment? I think everything has happened quite quickly and perhaps legislation certainly hasn't caught up with the reality um, that is facing emergency department nurses at work. So it's kind of lagging behind. They're talking about it. So Gillian Skinner, when she was the health minister, was looking at a plan to try to improve. So everyone's starting to acknowledge there's a problem, but still in terms of the actual support for nurses on a day-to-day basis doing their job, it's not there yet. Jacqueline Pitch, lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Are we training our workforce to deliver the healthcare we want and need? That's one of the biggest questions looking to be answered in the latest review currently underway by the COAG Council of Australia. One of the major areas of focus for this review is the accreditation of medical practitioners across the country. Mike Woods from the University of Technology, Sydney, has been appointed by the Australian Health Workforce Ministerial Council as the independent reviewer. Mike says to start addressing how we can improve the future of training and accreditation for healthcare workers, we need to look at where we are falling short. 
there were some fundamental flaws right from the start. Uh, all of this stems from a 2005 Productivity Commission report into the health workforce that I was presiding commissioner for in a former life. And it showed that the programs of study, the education and training of the health workforce was very siloed. So there were courses for nurses, courses for midwives, courses for doctors, courses for physios, but there was no integration of that. So the accreditation of those courses and the registration of the health professionals has all been done at the individual profession level, whereas what Australia needs is a much more integrated workforce. What is the damage in having these different areas siloed? By them being separate from one another, why do you consider that to be a flaw? We need to look at the role of the health workforce. Now, if you go to a physio, first and foremost, you want them to be a very excellent physio or a heart surgeon. You want them first and foremost to be a very, very good heart surgeon. But in today's world, the health needs of the population are changing. So we need to move away from that single interventionist process by a particular specialist with a bit of support from other health workers because when you look at the health profile, the burden of disease in the population, it is now significantly more oriented to the chronic diseases, the cancers, uh, heart diseases, diabetes, all of those things, a lot of which I might add are lifestyle-driven. And we need a workforce that can provide team-based integrated care and over a longer period. So rather than a specific professional intervention, which you still need in lots of cases, but it needs to be supported by a much more integrated team-based healthcare system. And what would that look like? Like, what is the significance of team-based? Is it so you can kind of share information amongst medical professionals? It's a matter of having the patient at the centre, which in itself is a novel concept for some, but it is ensuring that that patient receives not only the individual interventions of the specialist health workers, but that those health workers cooperate with each other, that they can provide care that is continuous and complementary and supportive rather than a, a passing parade of individual health professionals who perform individual functions on that patient. Why don't we do that already? That's a very good question. Part of what I'm trying to address in this review of the accreditation system is to look at interprofessional education and learning processes so that the health workforce, in the context of their individual professions, have a better understanding of the capacities of the other professions and where those professions can provide support and complementarity through a patient-centred approach. And so are you saying that they don't necessarily understand what the other people are doing? That's certainly a first point, that their knowledge of the other professions is limited. But not only that, there is a need for them to understand the value that can be added by those other professions to the healthcare of the patient. So, So it's one thing just to know what the others do. It's a a more important thing to know how those other skills can work in an integrated manner so that the totality of healthcare that the individual receives, and remember this is all for the individual, not for the health professionals, that that can be of a much higher quality and, and lead to better outcomes. 
Where do you begin to solve the problem? I am looking at the accreditation system. Uh, I'm the independent reviewer for this 12-month review. And so I'm looking to see what contribution the educational foundation of these health workers. They fall into three broad areas. The first is how to make the current accreditation system more effective and efficient, you know, getting rid of overlaps and onerous processes and duplication. And clinical placements is a good example. At the moment, we have a metrocentric focus. Most health professionals go through big teaching hospitals, but a lot of health delivery is in rural and remote, in disadvantaged areas. It's delivered through primary care, through community uh, health services, but there needs to be changes in, in that system. I don't want to pretend that I know the answers till I've completed my review process, otherwise what's the point of being engaging with the <laughs> all of the stakeholders, but certain themes are coming out at the moment. And one is that the education and training has to be assessed according to the outcomes it produces, not the inputs that go into it. So so that's a very clear message that's coming through. Instead of saying how many hours of training on this and that and the other are required to be accredited as a program, it's saying what is the quality of the person in terms of their knowledge, skills and attributes uh, that they will have having done that course. So that allows education providers to be more innovative, provided that innovation is actually net positive. Reform can be good or bad. Um, Provided it is net positive innovation, then it allows the education providers to create programs of study that are more focused to getting that sort of outcome. But it's also freeing them up. I want an accreditation system that allows diversity in clinical placements, that recognises the importance of interprofessional learning. So these are the sorts of outcomes I want from the system and certainly that's the messages that I'm getting from stakeholders. And within these themes, why would they then be of better benefit for the patient? Because ultimately we want a health system and the workforce within that system that understands the roles of each of the professions that can utilise those skills, knowledge and, and attributes of the various professions in a much more cohesive and coordinated way that is focused on the individual patient, not that the patient has to adapt to the modalities of a range of individual professionals who are performing their own skill base. Mike Woods, Professor in the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. If you have any questions after today's show, go see your GP. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.